0: <laughs>
1: Namaste motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Mashup. And today's theme is satire. Before we get started, today's guest Rachel Paris and I are both playing the piano, not together as a duet, independently, in a celebrity concert at the King's Place in London this coming Sunday the 3rd of December. We're raising funds for Crisis UK. Um, Other people playing include Jay Rayner, Amelia Fox, Alistair McGowan and Ed Balls, uh, a few other people on too. And there are a few tickets left, I think just a handful of tickets left, uh, so there's a link to that in the show notes so back to today's theme which is satire real satire spelt as what you would imagine is a german word for a real event that seems like it should be satire well that does what it says on the tin real satire basically everything that's happened in british politics since about 2016 In 1990, the satirical magazine Spy sent cheques for 13 cents to some of the world's richest people. Only two cashed them in, and they were the Saudi Arabian arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi and, wait for it, Donald Trump. And in 1875, Grieg wrote In the Hall of the Mountain King as a satire of terrible music said he could barely stand to hear it. It is now one of his most played and best remembered pieces.
0: Well, don't get me wrong, I've got makeup on. Listen, so. me
1: too. That's today's guest, Rachel Paris. Politics, said political writer and publicist Ernest Benn, is the art of looking for trouble, finding it, whether it exists or not, diagnosing it incorrectly and applying the wrong remedies. In an experiment conducted in Moscow people had to answer questions about politics and have a drink every 12 minutes. The study ran for an hour and a half and showed that the more people drank the more they began to support the government. And finally I've got a reason for loving this fact, which I'll tell you in a minute. In 1974, Oliver Postgate made a special episode of The Clangers called Vote for Froglet. It was a satirical response to the political process of the day, which he described as being completely buggered by inter-party squabbling. I'm very glad he's not around to see where we've got to nearly 50 years on. And um, I had the pleasure of my first job in television, working for a channel called The Children's Channel um, back in the, well, 1990 it would have been. Um, and I was one of the people who went and got all of the old Clangers and Bagpuss and all of those episodes and we picked them up um, on their 16mm film, that's what they'd been made on, and we got them all transferred onto digital tapes and that's why they can still be enjoyed. By everybody around the world today. And um, he recorded and made them all in a pig, sort of on a pig farm, not a pig farm, like a pig hut um, type of thing uh, with a little homemade studio. And I never forget going in there and there were little bits of clangers and all these piles of film reels. It was amazing. Anyway. I digress. Just to
0: warn you, I'm here for now, and then a heating
1: engineer is going to arrive, who was meant to come at nine. Rachel Paris is an award-winning musical comedian, actor, improviser, and presenter, She was nominated for BAFTA's Best Entertainment Performance and beat, among others, Ellen DeGeneres and Amy Schumer to become Female Firsts Comedian of the Year. Her appearances on The MASH Report went viral around the world and led to an almost overnight meteoric rise in her comedy profile. Her other TV appearances include Live at the Apollo, QI, Would I Lie to You, Mock the Week and Hypothetical. Rachel is a founding member of the acclaimed improv comedy show, Ostentatious, which is done in the style of a Jane Austen novel, each show improvised by a six-strong cast based on a title suggested by a member of the audience. It's also, by the way, one of my kids' favourite shows ever. We always go to see it when they come to see me in Edinburgh. She is also author of the brilliant book, Advice from Strangers, Everything I Know from People I Don't Know. On that note, um, a quick trigger warning. Rachel writes very movingly in her book about losing her first baby. And we talk about that towards the end of our conversation together. And we've put a link in the show notes to Tommy's in case you're affected by that conversation. So back to the episode, Rachel and I talked about The MASH Report, Deadlines, Music, Love, Improvisation, Blended Families, Satire, Feminism, Reinvention, Jane Austen, Dungeons and Dragons, Dreams, and Having Your Name in Lights. But I started by asking her about her prolific creative output.
0: like i'm not being productive at the moment at all i'm literally sitting around in the day thinking pretty sure i should be producing something i should be writing something i should be being useful and instead i am watching a lot of youtube videos
1: i'm so relieved Um, to hear that because i look up to you as someone who has 17 careers and does them all brilliantly and you're probably writing piano concertos in your sleep and that sort of a person
0: i'll tell you what I i need someone on on my ass telling me to, i've got a deadline and it's a deadline that like it's going to be on air tomorrow things like uh, you know the now show on radio four i do love I love the, the, the song, show. that's almost one of the only mechanisms that makes me write a new song is having to write a song for the now show they're like you've got to write it on tuesday you've got to submit it by wednesday and you've got to be able to perform it by thursday and that is the level of pressure that i
1: need to get me to write stuff it's funny you say actually funnily i never think i can write topical stuff but when i've done things like the now show i realize oh i can but yeah. i can only do it with a gun to my head and actually you could decide yes. to write like that you could go well, actually i'm going to give myself a topic i'm going to write and i'm but i'm the side that i didn't in lockdown people were like oh i was writing loads i just went to ground wrote nothing because i had no performance or apart from zoom comedy so i was like what then, am i writing for
0: same like like i and um Marcus we were, we were putting stuff out but it was like disposable in the moment stuff that's what our brains could handle in lockdown and people were like considering we were doing like a weekly show on zoom uh, for, a, for a year and everyone was like oh you must have amassed so much material we didn't amass a minute there wasn't mm. a minute of material from that year that we could ever use again somehow it was stuff that sort of worked in the moment it's a bit stream of conscious but really writing proper stuff I found that hard and the same with what you were saying about topical stuff I find writing topical stuff hard it's funny that I'm sort of more known for like the Mash report and stuff like that but that again it's just the pressure it's like I got the job I enjoyed the job and every week there was a deadline and you had to have it ready and it had to be you know uh submitted and checked and everything and fact checked and it had to Uh, And then uh, co-writers writing it and I need (laughs) (laughs) the pressure has to be real.
1: I think it's also when you've got having to do it. I know we spoke about when you when you did the Ludlow Piano Festival and you played so beautifully and the pressure then when you've at the time, you know, really, I know you've still got a very young child. And when you've got that small window and a deadline of a concert and you just have to grab that time and you have to use it. Was yeah. that a real discipline in getting Because you do play. I mean, was it? Did you have to sort of ramp yourself up to be able to play at that incredible level, or was that sort of where you are? No, I really had to ramp it up.
0: Definitely, I I practiced the way I haven't practiced since I was sixteen. Um, it was yeah, that was a real challenge that I set myself. Um, to play that was a that Brahms piece. It's Brahms Intermezzo in A. Um, was something that I used to be able to play like that (laughs) when I was at the top of my piano game when I was yeah like probably probably 16 actually was
1: when I was best so you were grade 8 pianist that's before you obviously went to study music at Oxford so you obviously were quite gifted
0: yes 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 I suppose I was um yeah I think I would say I was I was gifted and I worked hard at it but it went off um you know if you stop practicing which I did stop like actually I went to Oxford and did music but I did not play nearly as much or is in such a disciplined way as, as at Oxford as I had beforehand so yeah practicing up for that piano festival uh like you say I was like okay so Billy and Billy wasn't in nursery at that point so when there were naps or in the evening or if we ever got a babysitter or if Marco could take him those little pockets of like half an hour to practice that piece was so vital and I really made the most of them and I had to because if i if I tried to play the piano, when Billy's there, he either joins in, or actually goes, "No, mummy," takes <laughs> <Picks> my <laughs> takes it off the piano forcibly, which is quite hurtful.
1: my kids used to hate me playing the piano that's why I stopped playing the piano they used to get they used to object so strenuously to me playing the piano I I think it's more an attention thing isn't it let's say it's not that they hate the sound of the piano but we're engaged in something that is not them so they're not going to be fans my dog sits on my feet when I play the piano literally so I can't do much pedal work when the dog decides to sit on my feet but how much were you practicing every day to get to the point you did for that because you were absolutely sounded (laughs) to me concert pianist level at that concert no
0: and only in that piece as well like I really did just practice it's a hell of a piece. piece um yeah I did I practiced a little bit maybe once a day and then on some days it'd be like a lot of times a day if I got a big bit of time for about um I that thing about feeling the pressure I probably I felt the pressure earlier than normal for that I knew I had a lot of work to do so I felt the pressure I think about two or three weeks before uh maybe three weeks before I was like oh, I remember how hard this is and how much work it takes. So, yeah, about three weeks before, I was like, I've got to go for it.
1: Um, and it paid off. Are you playing about, more since you did that? Did that get you to no, a level? I'd love
0: to do more. I'd love to do more. I'm going to go back next year, and I know you're doing it. Next I'm doing year, it next year. Too. Mark's
1: hopefully doing it next year as well. Amazing. So, yeah, that'll be so nice. Yeah, yeah, it will be really nice. I had real FOMO when I was there, but I um, but I would not have remotely been ready. And is it you said about writing to deadlines? It's funny because I assume, having seen your comedy and obviously knowing you from the Mash Report that you're quite forensic like I know you're sort of a straight A student you're quite diligent you're very diligent so I just assume because everything is so well thought through and so well crafted I know you're also brilliant at improv but I just assume you're someone who's got a massive work ethic and huge self-discipline is that am I wrong? It's a bit of
0: both I do not have a good work ethic when it comes to just doing stuff when it needs to be done in a sensible way I definitely need that deadline and I do things I do do things last minute where it's possible definitely I did that at school as well but in terms of being diligent and forensic yeah that probably is true like I won't let something go like writing scripts for the mass report for example yeah I I do get I get quite anal about it and I would yeah I think I think I I think I am quite exacting once I've got going on something Mm -hmm. but getting going on something is the hard bit I'm just going to get a tissue I've got snot dripping from my nose no worries you remember the um the so Billy started nursery in September so you're getting everything getting everything Mm -hmm. we've had two bugs back to back when he first started and in terms of colds we're just it's an absolute revelation we've had like nine colds overlapping one after the other we just keep getting over one and then getting another you're going to be ill
1: for seven years (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) well marcus can tell you or he's probably forgotten because the other i I think when your kids are that much older oh he's gotten it all has he yeah yeah and did you um because i want to ask you about marcus and because i know you know all the, the blended family thing you and i have parallel yeah. lives in that regard only in my case the the little one is is the other families and i've got the older ones um but in terms of the um the because that that must have been such a weird thing for you that you went so big so quickly with political stuff that everyone's got an opinion about. So it's not just, oh, I've got this silly reel about me and my dog and millions of people have seen it. Yeah, It's things that people have an opinion about whether or not you've written them yourself, whether or not they understand it's satire. Yeah. So what was that like?
0: Yeah, it was strange and unexpected, I think. Uh, like, as you know, if you're a performer, you kind of go in whatever direction is saying yes to you. Uh, And when I got the job on the Mash report, it was just one of several jobs that I'd like auditioned for. um, And I was taken on initially more of more as a comedy actress than anything else. Like the role I was initially playing was written for me. Those first four weeks of the Mash report, I was just playing like a sort of character reading out tweets. And I was playing another character as well, a newsreader character with a different name. So it was a different job to what it became. And then my role, um, got bigger and I started writing on it, um which was good which was obviously really good, you know, give her more. Um and I suppose I was never obviously I didn't stop to think um what arena I'd be moving into in terms of being a sort of political uh, voice, voice. She's not something I ever expected to to be. Um, It was just sort of a, it was a job, but obviously the the subjects I was talking about were ones that I really cared about. Um, We'd sort of choose what topics that I would do in my section, and
1: we chose them quite carefully. Um, Based on what you felt you could write to and what genuinely, because it's quite a specific thing. If you think about somebody like Nish, who came out the gates, political yeah, And there are some of us that can be topical if we're doing a comedy show and it requires some topical stuff. But I mean, you're really immersed in a show that's very nuanced in terms of its political views. So there's a lot to writing on a show like that.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, that's what I think about Nish. I think of Nish. And I think Nish is politics through and through. Like mm-hmm. he is so involved in it and thinking about it all the time. And his comedy, when he's not in those shows is also about that like it's he he lives and breathes that topic Mm -hmm. um and that's not me so I feel like I turned my head to it and we really yeah we worked hard to find topics that I particularly cared about and could write in a funny way about but my favorite ones are the ones that really I'm really livid about the ones about violence against women ones about sexual harassment things like that um so those those are the ones that I felt most passionate writing about uh, and working on. But yeah, it was it was um, it was like a really interesting, exciting, and difficult <laughs> experience.
1: Because it all so, came um, at once you met. It was the same time yeah. you were meeting Marcus, moving him. So you had this monumental life change on every possible level. Yes, yeah, I think
0: that was yeah that was it. It was all wrapped up together. So. I was uh, getting into a relationship that I sort of knew straight away was going to be serious.
1: And you'd known um, each other for a while beforehand. So you were sort of pals yeah. who then became romantically linked. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so we'd known each other for years. So when we got together,
0: we knew enough about each other to know it was going to be serious. You know, it's just sort of, we just sort of knew. And yeah, so then also moving in, moving away from uh sort of, flat i'd been in for 8 years so yeah that was quite a big displacement um and yeah huge change in my career my career was not only unrecognisable in that it got bigger but also unrecognisable because it was as i say in this arena of tv satire that i'd never been in before so it wasn't just like it wasn't like if a comedy song had gone viral mm. and i was suddenly being booked to be a musical comedian on stages it was like this isn't even a thing i've been doing for you in my career so it was it was it was odd and then you're dealing with um being thought of as a left-wing sort of shock jock
1: figure mm-hmm. which I don't think of it's very off-brand in. for you in a way isn't it it's not at all what anyone would have been saying a yeah, year before I
0: don't really like confrontation that much and I don't like to think of, Well, certainly not a jock uh but like I yeah it it was an odd it was an odd time but it was i do miss it i miss it now and i'm I'm sad i was sad when late night mash got cancelled i feel like i i just really there were sort of highs and lows in terms of how easy it was the process of doing that show and it kind of just reached a point where i was like oh i'm actually just enjoying this
1: (laughs) i really enjoyed hosting um And And it really worked for you. I mean, you did seem, I I guess that's why people assumed you'd always been doing it. It didn't seem like an unnatural fit. It just felt for anyone who didn't know what you were doing before or what you were known for, you just looked like a perfect fit. So people would assume that's what you do. That's you. And that's all they knew of you, I guess, at that point, apart from the people who've been buying tickets for your shows. But in terms of the mainstream public. That's yeah, what absolutely. they first knew you as. And it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because it is a, not a misrepresentation of you, but it's getting straight into an area, an arena that's really controversial for somebody yeah. who never wished to be in that arena, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. When I do tour shows now, uh, when I first started touring after MASH, um, and that tour, I mean, it's gone off now, but that tour like just sold out really quickly, doing bigger houses than I'd ever done before. It was such a change. But I knew all that audience were not there to see me doing whimsical musical comedy. They were there to see me bashing Boris Johnson. So I had to really think about what material I was going to do. It had to be different from what I'd done before. So what they ended up with was a fair bit of satire, a good chunk of feminism, a few songs. Um, I'm sort of drip feeding the audiences gradually. And my next tour that I'll do next year, I'm like... I think enough time has passed now. I'm just going to do very musical comedy heavy,
1: a bit of satire, but not much. Um, Well, you're very known for all the things you do now. I think that it sort of almost catches up again, doesn't it? So you've got this absolute burst of stuff for MASH Report and then people go with you and realise what the rounded you is because by then you're somebody people are interested in and have seen on loads of things. So the touch paper can get lit in whatever direction. It's funny how you suddenly then get booked for everything, even though you were a skilled to stand up, before that happened isn't it so suddenly (laughs) now we want you in live at the Apollo it's like no I've been pretty good for a while now it must have been odd to suddenly get the shows you really wanted having been really good at the bit they were booking you for for a long time previously
0: yeah sort of although you still
1: get you still get all
0: of all of those feelings and insecurities and worries about every other aspect I've got this thing that I think the BBC has forgotten that I'm a stand-up I think they get that I'm a presenter and a satirist now but um (laughs) <laughs> the talks I've had with my agent about the BBC being like, do we have to send them clips of me like doing stand up to remind them that I also just do stand up? <laughs>
1: but it's easy isn't it for commissioners to pigeonhole you that's what they want somebody who and also you are a brilliant presenter and you're there aren't as many people who are really funny and can be presenters that's a rarer crossover so I guess they're also going with what they what they think they can do a yeah. lot with you what is if you have to pick a thing that you do so it sounds yeah. as if what, what is important for you in terms of your tv career your broadcasting career what is the kind of voice and presence that you want
0: well, I think the things I really love doing just don't have a place on TV anymore. Being realistic, so musical comedy, you know, it has a place online, which is great, mm-hmm. and I should definitely make more of the most of that because I don't do all the social media.
1: That's such an that's such TV. a gateway drug for everything else. I think it's a yeah, really. I mean, you don't need to. I I get all everything I get is through what I do online. Yeah, do, but that's as a later do. entrance need to, to start the business. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So, but
0: like, I love musical comedy. I love writing songs. Um improv again there's not much place for it on tv and yet uh it's the thing I love doing the most um uh and I still love acting but I hardly I hardly get any acting work um but like yeah the the improv I love doing because that's part of like a team and I (laughs) for someone like me as earlier discussed the lack of prep yeah. And it yeah, was in your
1: favour yeah, and a I'm deadline.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely a deadline. Really well, one of the things mm. when I uh, when I started out um, doing stand-up, the kids were in their sort of I can't remember early teens, I guess. Yeah. And they'd come up to Edinburgh with me for a couple of weeks and we always would see ostentatious, and it was always the thing that they oh, most um, loved and of all the guests i've had on the podcast my son is most excited about you being someone i'm talking to because he absolutely he does dungeons and dragons and is a dungeon master and as you may know it's very improvisational and stories yeah, and definitely. and he's he's was massively inspired by everything that you did in ostentatious that's so so, nice. yeah.
0: i love yeah. that he's a dungeon master that's so cool yes i find he that is. very intimidating I don't, the amount of knowledge you have to keep in your head as a dungeon master I've well he said he'd been
1: inspired by some of the ways you do things he, he genuinely he said that some of the building blocks and some of the sort of types of story arcs that a lot of it came from. What I get he, he's been to ostentatious quite a few times, and I think he, yeah. while we were just enjoying it, me and his sister, he was obviously really looking at it and how you were doing it. I know it's amazing when he started doing it. I didn't know people like Stephen Colbert and people like that are dungeon masters, and I didn't realize I just thought it was like playing Call of Duty until I actually engaged with it. I thought, no, it's incredible, mystical, creative, wonderful world, it's am- really creative. But he was he, um, wondered how much you he said were there um how much of it is do you sort of have a sort of I'm sure you do but is there a sort of formula beyond the obvious formula of you going in and asking for the title and going with it but is it absolutely free reign it could go anywhere really absolutely
0: range, yeah
1: yeah it as we always say to people if,
0: if it had more of a formula a lot of the stories would make a hell of a lot more sense than they do <laughs> like you come to shows and you're like oh that what like from the side we're really enjoying it and it's always funny but there's plenty of stories where we're like oh, what is
1: happening what is happening here but that's <laughs> the no That's definitely the joy do you have do you, you must do you have in jokes though and stuff where you're going to say certain words or do you, is there stuff that gets passed around or is it literally it is what what we see is what is happening no what you what you see is what you get very much so um that's the and kind you're very, of the, sorry go ahead I
0: was just going to say like there are other long-form improv groups that are slicker than us um that really rehearse better than us rehearse more than us uh but also who are aiming for something much more polished showstopper for example is polished as hell and they always say showstoppers whole thing is that you can come to see us and we're not trying to show you that it's improvised we just want you to feel like you've seen a musical that happens to have not been written yet and actually what we love in ostentatious is showing you the the edges showing Mm. you
1: that's what's so lovely to watch as well yes of it and I was
0: enjoying being in the mess of it um that's sort of a big part of what we are and that's why having any background structure would never work for us
1: and how is it for you as somebody who has such a sort of central role in terms of the presentation the bringing in where you know you're you're very much yes you're, you're very much at the backbone of the whole thing does that feel like oh we switched that round actually oh I've only ever seen you do that that's weird oh, really? I've seen you several <laughs> times funny. it's always been
0: you um no yeah we switch it round so there's like a rolling cast so like yeah it could be it could be anyone
1: there's oh, that's a funny. Of us it's always prefer... been you. we just thought
0: it was you yeah no that's really but I've heard that before but about different cast people yeah yeah that just you just members. assume yeah yeah um, but yeah we we all have roles there's one of us who really loves doing the intro like not the not the academic and expert character but just the the sort of nice formal introduction kind of thing and there's others of us who aren't bothered about that and then there's some of us like I do really enjoy being Sam Patton the expert kind of um academic character who comes on at the start Uh, so we all we sort of have preferred roles but we strictly rotate it
1: okay I've just missed yeah that's funny isn't it that it's ended up on that each time and do you end up with that in terms of how you feel before you perform I've never done any improv beyond what you do in crowd work as a comic is it is it a different thing before you go on to do something that's purely improvised like ostentatious as opposed to a crafted show
0: um just having a think about that well all I can tell you is what we do which is we we have a warm-up um we in the warm-up we try to do a mixture of getting our energy going or sometimes uh focusing because we're being too mental um if you're a bit too wired and all over the place and your head's going blah, blah 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 trying to focus with each other um doing exercises that help us concentrate in um And connect with each other because that's i think that's the most important thing for us the funny and the chaos comes very easily so what we work on before and during the show is trying to connect with each other because the audience knows it's a good show and we know that it's been a good show when the audience cares about the characters and their relationships and we know we've slightly we can have a really funny chaotic show but one where no one's really cared about anything um but we're aiming for the ones with good emotional connections. so before the show we're trying to just have a bit of grounding with each other and
1: that's really interesting it. when I yeah. think about what I've seen you do I hadn't thought about that but that is true that is a real layer to it isn't it and you are actually creating characters in the blink of an eye that people give a shit about that aren't just recognizable in a caricature way but there's yeah. more to them which actually that's a hell of a feat
0: we're trying to we don't always nail it but that's what we're always aiming for yeah is to whatever happens because you're so in the moment with it you know trying to there's there's always humor and there's always funny things happening and the unexpected but amongst all of that you're trying to find uh reasons to have an emotion you have to have something that sparks a feeling uh and a big enough feeling to carry through for an hour and a half so it's got to be can't just be like I really want that cup of tea it's got to be something I really want that cup of tea because if I have that cup of tea, this woman might believe that I love her, and I can't have her because I'm too impoverished. Or something like that.
1: Oh, I love it Finding thinking about the, the yeah. weight behind everything. And that because you've done it, and you can tell when you talk about it, and above all when you do it. But you got into comedy via improv, right? So improv was your sort of routine after after being at uni. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would never have thought of comedy uh,
0: at all. But not when I was growing up you know watched comedy obviously loved comedy loved like Reeves and Mortimer and Victoria Wood and just you know really really loved comedy but I never thought I didn't know any I didn't know it was a career for obviously um and yeah even at uni I was doing bits of acting and performing but never never comedy um and I did a year at drama school actually when I was in my early 20s uh and my drama teacher was very was like you don't understand comedy comedy (laughs) remember she was like encouraging
1: we did like just a little bit on comedy
0: it was like a straight acting course but we did a bit on comedy and
1: what did she mean by that what was her point exactly i was too
0: small i was too small she said comedy has to be big comedy has to be exaggerated okay she sounds very old school yeah so that made me think I wasn't disheartened by it because I didn't think I wanted to do comedy. So it didn't have like, I wasn't like, oh, I can't be a comedian because <laughs> I wasn't a comedian. But then it was the year after that, that uh, the, I discovered, yeah, this group called the Oxford Imps who did short form improv. And I fell in with that. I got into the group and just instantly was like, oh, this, this I can do. This is And the was it that- instant? Did you just take to improv? yeah it was instant it was in the audition actually in the audition I was like this what it was I was looking around and I could see other people auditioning were not finding it easy and were nervous and uncomfortable and I was felt even in the audition amongst strangers doing that I felt like less nervous and less uncomfortable than I did in most performing circumstances
1: that's so interesting Um, whereas a lot of people it's the most excruciating thing isn't it having to improvise for
0: some people yeah or that I'm a big believer that I, I really think with a with a good teacher or the right environment everyone can enjoy improv but of course as with anything in life it suits some people more than
1: others and did it what do you think about you know upright citizens brigade and those kind of like do you, is that a different ethos to yours or is that a similar very similar no, approach no at all no same
0: same ethos um i think they're absolutely brilliant i've gone on pilgrimages to see them when i've been in america um and any touring teachers who come over to the uk um i've tried to learn from because i think you can have your own ethos but it's all it's all part of the same thing which is just play just playing in a positive way building each other up listening um just that yeah just play and I think that's
1: where it all comes from so learning from different people I think is really important it is and I think also because you were a teacher as well weren't you you were a music teacher after uni is that right so I guess you're also having worked out how to unlock those kind of things in kids, primary kids. Is that right? That you taught? Yeah. Yeah, Does does that have an impact as well? Working out what it is to get them to be able to be creative.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I really miss teaching. Um, So I did, I mean, I did like one-to-one tuition from age 16 right through to 33. Wow. Um, But there were some years where I did more sort of in schools and, different kinds of it, sometimes group teaching sometimes more tuition kind of stuff but
1: so I you only that, fully uh, gave up teaching relatively do, recently do, within do, the last few years we were talking about your improv one of the things that i think is really was really hard to find and i think it still is quite hard to find but look down sort of sucked the fun out of everything and the play out of everything. I think the thing that we didn't all realise we were really missing was any kind of lightness. But then yeah. you in particular with the sort of comedy you do make a living out of lightness. So how was that? Was that How did you find a sense of play and fun and when those, those shit things were going on all around? Yeah, there was plenty of shit, wasn't there? Um, I think we needed it, I think. Because as a I couple, just, you I... seemed to be having fun.
0: Like, don't get me wrong, we had our dark moments. That's like, what I'm after, we, Rachel.
1: Never mind the like <laughs> never mind the gloss like... and the fun.
0: <laughs> but we I think we really needed to find the lightness. Um it helped that once we had with both of the main things that we did in lockdown, one of them was this lockdown lip sync. Um, yeah i loved that one was was cheering yeah it was really fun and the other one was tuesday night club yeah with lockdown lip sync that became quite quickly and we decided that it would be a daily challenge and we did that i think quite consciously because we knew that it did as good and we needed to commit to doing something fun every day and doing something a bit a bit active and that was a bit of a faff you know a bit creative um just an activity to do and with the Tuesday nightclub like how nice for us that we got offered like you can do this every week and not only can you but you sort of have to because people have bought tickets for it now so that again it comes back to the in a way the commitment and the deadline thing which is I'm convinced the only reason I've managed to get through an entire comedy career is taking on gigs that I can never be asked to do on the day but but I've put them in the diary so I've got to do them
1: (laughs) I think that is the secret Um, for all of us and that and it's funny you say you never (laughs) want to do them on the day I always get in a right old it's not even ratty I just get a bit resentful that I've got that thing and then I always love it it's always the best bit of my day but there's an absolutely inevitable the two hours particularly when I have to put my makeup on and I'm slouching around in joggers and I've got I've got to look nice and I've got it and I just get really pissy leave it till last minute and no one would know I was I'm not horrible to anyone else but internally I'm a bit like oh god sake and then it's the nicest thing totally the same I think people underestimate as well the
0: amount of extra fat it is being a woman doing your hair and putting makeup on definitely it takes ages it It does it takes me I can do it
1: in about what I don't know how long my average is about 20 minutes for a gig from a and that's if I've already got clean hair yeah yeah that's if the basics have been done
0: but it does take
1: that long and men don't have to worry about that and also if you've got one miles away from home and you get ready by the time you get there it's probably different for you by the time you're in your mid-50s by the time you get there you've got to reconstruct a whole face again Rachel it's you have to do it twice oh no,
0: I do that. I've got this. Um, it's my favourite makeup thing. Is the like L'Oreal sort of half powder, half foundation thing? Just like a sponge, oh. and it, it just does a great job of like if you you've already done it
1: that on Instagram.
0: I'll link, I'll link it I've to I've got you. a really it's good a Charlotte Tilbury
1: that was recommended to me. I did a Pantene campaign and the makeup they did for me and that was the best makeup I'd ever had. And I ended up get, getting all the tips and there's a, brill- a brilliant thing that I will exchange tips on. But it is, um, do you find also, uh, everybody always remembers me for my hair. I think that's about all anyone ever knows about me is my hair. <laughs> um, but do you, being someone with long blonde hair I've always thought that must be the most glamorous wonder. Does everyone just think you're beautiful and funny? You are beautiful and funny, but does it just come with the job as well? That people are just like, you must be beautiful and glamorous and funny.
0: Um, I don't know. I, I find I, that's really interesting because my friend, uh, Anna, who I know from uni, she's uh, got hair a bit like yours, but black. Um, and she, <laughs> at uni, used to, have a phrase that she would talk about which was a blonde herring um like a red herring but blonde like a red herring but a blonde and she would say uh in (laughs) don't get me wrong we'd all talk about this makes her sound like catty but she wasn't being it was just a really good point that I've carried through to now which is that you the level of like pretty you are uh does not increase by being blonde but it is like a red herring for people in terms of TV producers uh, and stuff like that. That if you're blonde, they're like, yeah, I think that's a pretty woman uh, because she's blonde. And I've gone not blonde before in my life. I've gone like dark. And it's fascinating the way people treat you differently. Is
1: that right? In what yeah, way?
0: I do. I fa- well one thing is that I got cracked onto a lot less even though my face was the same my hair was still long and the same hair was just a different color um and I did find uh I was too young to know at the time about I wasn't in a position to be taken seriously or not taken seriously in terms of work but I do I do find people constantly surprised when I'm uh authoritative which I am um and when I, I'm serious about work, uh, when I expect people to do their job. Uh, <laughs> it's me being authoritative. Um,
1: <laughs> Nose and tissue.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, but I do find that level of surprise, Not, it's not universal, obviously, but I think there are um, a few people who maybe have old school glasses on in terms of looking at blonde blonde women and thinking that they're a certain way.
1: That's so interesting. And also younger, I do sometimes wonder what it, because I got into comedy in my sort of mid to late forties. And that's- a How whole different- old are you? Because you look, you look my age or younger. Well, God bless you. Let's finish the podcast here. I think that's a fine end point. <laughs> what are you, do- what I, I'm are you 54. doing? I'm close to 55, Rachel. That's mental. So, well, it yes. Well, <laughs> thank you. I think I've aged a lot, thanks to Mr. You Mark so Steele. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I literally I could almost see white hair sprouting when I was sleeping yeah. in chairs in hospitals. I was like, I'm literally aging, and I lost quite a lot of weight with it all. Uh, I think I've lost more weight than he has. And instead of it being a lovely thing, I just like, no, you can't look what, what Dolly Parton said about choosing between your face and your ass. Um, and yeah. you've got, you d- I definitely, I need the poundage. <laughs> at this <stage> in life. <laughs> but it is, I did wonder if there, well, I didn't just wonder, I know, it, even the sort of sexist shit I've kind of coped with as someone older and then I hear some of the things that some of the young comedians, female comedians put up with, and I'm just like, well, not don't put up with as in they don't stand for it, but um, are required to put up with. And I just think, bloody hell, it's still an incredibly difficult world for for women to be in, in many regards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's. I, I find it interesting because it, it comes up um, in lots of different ways to lots of different people. So one thing I haven't really encountered as much is... Um, and I I wondered why not I don't know what I'm putting out there but I haven't encountered really obvious misogyny on the circuit on the live circuit as much I've had audio obviously I've done like regional gigs where audiences have been like well, who's this a woman on stage like I've had all the normal audience reaction of like not being used to female comics and stuff but I've and I found it in in the television I've worked in, which hasn't been extensive, but the the producers, um, uh, the the people like high up are so often men who have been in that position for uh, decades. Too um, long, one might too say. Too long, and it's astonishing the hoops you've had to jump through sometimes I'm um, <laughs> to persuade to persuade people that what you've done and already proven yourself is going to be good enough and I've been exp- I've had people say to so before a really big famous comedy show I love- I'm hardly shielding this now but um before a big famous comedy show I had um the producer come up to me the exact producer come up to me uh and um Kerry Godleyman Mm -hmm. who were the women on the show and come up and go hi hi girls are you um you excited you excited and we were just standing there talking we were not not very nervous but you know ready just
1: like it was a make a wish
0: day yeah exactly or as if as the women on the show we should be like girlishly girlishly thrilled and sort of and smiling as well that old like give us a smile thing I think we weren't smiling enough for him and that was, only, that was only a few years ago. Mm. Uh, and I don't know, I've just, these things, oh, it's, it's annoying. And you can't put all of it down to sexism, I'm aware. I think that some people are, are a dick to everyone. But um, the I certainly, yeah, for certain shows, I had to persuade a producer, like, I'd, I'd been booked for this based on what I'd already done in terms of comedy. And yet... I had, he said, I had to sort of audition for him. And I went into the audition with a suitcase because I was on tour with my standup comedy. And he said, now to be on this show, Rachel, this really is stand-up comedians and you're an improviser. And I said, yeah, I'm an improviser and a standup comedian. I do both. And he was like, mm. and he said, I know you're in Showstopper. And I said, I'm not in Showstopper. God. And he said, Whatever. Uh, and he said you're gonna be you're gonna be alongside stand-ups like he didn't he thought I didn't know what stand-up was he said you're gonna be alongside stand-ups like Ed Gamble and Reese James you know so I just need to make sure that you're gonna be able to do like jokes quickly not just like meander like an improviser towards it but actually like one-liner type jokes and I was like Yes, I I know Ed Andres from the
1: stand up circuit that I'm on, and also that you're doing so well as, when you're selling out shows, and it's not like it's not like you were trying to get into stand up. Do you yeah. find when you get because it's hard? I, I I'm writing a book at the moment that's about about women being underestimated and sort of claiming back the power. And there is a real power in being underestimated. I don't think we should have to seek the power, but I think it's a superpower sometimes. I uh, when I do after dinner speeches. Or, or keynote speeches, which is kind of large amount of how I make a living, and and that's again based on 20 years in boardrooms. You know, I've had, it's hard won that I have the credentials for that. Yeah, no one ever thinks I'm a, a speaker. I get very much ignored when I get there from the people there, the tech people never think I'm the speaker. And there's a sort of joy in it, in a way. If I sit at the dinner and no one bothers to ask who I am, they think I'm someone's wife. People will oh, ask me where the toilet is. They think I work there. And I, in a way, I kind of like it because I'm confident, much more confident in myself as a speaker than as a comic. Because I think, well, wait, in a minute, <laughs> in a minute you'll see who I am. Yeah. I'm not going to have to assert it. But that's only if you get the platform. You know, if you're being auditioned with those preconceptions, you might never get the chance to show what you can do because you might yeah. never get that far. Absolutely. I think I think that that gentle
0: underestimating um which is like just really low level first impression stuff which I know we all do to everyone all the time um but like you definitely yeah as a as a as a woman like everyone everyone looks different but like I certainly think I've had I've had people say to me as as feedback as positive feedback in the end after gigs um when you've I've had this several times I've had people say when you first walked on stage I was scared for you I was worried for you um and I think there's nothing less like I think the opposite of laughter the opposite of like finding someone funny is being scared for them mm. being protective of them and simply being you know a yeah a blonde woman walking on stage not shouting um they thought I couldn't handle myself. It's really interesting, persuade, isn't it? Um, yeah. uh, what was it? What was that gig um, where everyone used to get naked?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, the um, the uh, was it called Sp- spank?
0: Spank, spank. Yeah. In so, Edinburgh. Uh, spank in edinburgh and they did a few in london as well
1: and i used my, to like doing spank again because they'd underestimate like you i used to really like it because they'd think they're going to make mincemeat of you and then it was so easy to overreach their expectations of you that's what i used to love 100%. Yeah. exactly yeah
0: i remember um my old agent used to be involved with spank used to run spank and i remember they were like she believed in me but i think the other guys who ran spank were like oh they're gonna you know they're gonna eat her for breakfast
1: aren't they like she did they give you lots of tips that they gave me tips that I don't think they were giving to everybody kind of like well listen love try it a bit like this you might get away with it I was thinking I don't think you're giving this pre-gig briefing to everybody
0: yeah 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 I think they just they just weren't sure I remember them just being very honest and being like I don't think you're ready for spank because I think it would be too scary and I remember being like put me on put me on I think it'll be fine and it was and there was a there was a stag do in and I just dealt with them really well and sang a song about them at them. And like, it it was, fi- it was fine, I think.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Do you find now that you and Marcus have a little one, do you find people asking you how you cope with the childcare, but not him? Do you find there's like, and how are you managing? Whereas with men, they're not. Or when you're at something, who's got the baby as opposed to men with young children, just don't get asked that stuff. Or yes. maybe that's not the case with you too. Yeah, that does that
0: does happen not often but it's happened fairly recently actually someone just sort of saying oh I didn't book you because I I heard that you, you maybe I thought childcare would be difficult and I was like but you book Marcus yeah so that's why amazing do, why would it be difficult for me but not for Marcus yeah. like it is difficult but it's yeah. not more difficult we for both. me yeah um
1: yeah it it's in, it's interesting I mean and that, that's still the case I remember when we I, I was, as the kids were growing up even though we were separated um, but I did have a, a massively sort of challenging career and my kid's dad was on the school one more than me but probably he did three and I did two and I was the breadwinner so it, it was not a sort of radical reversal of gender roles and people still to this day are like oh my God wasn't he good wasn't he amazing <laughs> wasn't he am- wasn't he amazing all the child care he did. But first of all, it wasn't childcare, it was being a parent. And yeah. second of all, absolutely what you would not say that about a woman who was on the no. school run three days a week. Yeah. Wasn't she to be brilliant? fair, Marcus
0: hates that, like that that culture of like, oh, daddy's babysitting tonight. Yeah. And yeah. that whole thing of like Oh, fathers looking after the children this weekend, fingers
1: crossed. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, oh my god, what are you talking about? He's, yeah. He's and great. he's got form in this area. He's been he's been yeah, being he's a dad. Bad. He's been making a living he's better at fine. he's Great. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. Interestingly, the other from the other side of that coin, um, when me or Marcus are deciding which gigs to to do, uh, not that we're offered loads, but you know, you say, you know, you have to sort of balance what you can do with childcare. I, I think it comes more naturally and more easily to me to say, no, I can't do that because of Billy. I can't mm. do that because of childcare. And I think for Marcus, that reason doesn't feel as readily there. I think because of what people expect of men and women, mm. what people expect of mother I think if I say to someone, no, childcare, I literally sometimes I'm just like, no, childcare, that's it. And I I don't expect anyone to bat an eyelid and just go, yeah, that makes sense. Whereas I think when Marcus goes no childcare, um, people are like, oh, we, oh, right, something happened then. Something's there's a, something's gone awry. Um, so I I think it's not just what you're. It's sort of it's all in the ether, isn't it? It's what I'm saying. It sort of comes in circles, and then it's how we behave that feeds it
1: it's very deep rooted as received. well yeah and also how much you want to be I mean I definitely really 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 wanted to be with the kids I'm not saying men don't but I desperately wanted to be with the kids as much as I possibly could I used to find it immensely yeah. difficult leaving them traveling and all the things that you do yeah. is um I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody I also want to mention your book which I know is is not just been, written but it's relatively recent advice from strangers everything I know from people I don't know which is a brilliant 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 read and we'll put a link to it but that was um you talked about some really sort of moving things in that that was such a beautiful book well if you if you sort of picked a thing from that book that you would say read the book because of this bit that I loved writing or that meant a lot what bit would you pick
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you would think I would have an answer to this ready considering
0: how many considering the book talking about the book Uh, what's a bit that I really liked
1: in the book or a bit that was hard to write just something that that resonates now I think writing about
0: um losing my first baby is a bit that uh i i suppose i treasure it in the book um it, there's three chapters on it and they're the only chapters in the book that are dated because i wanted to capture how it felt at the different stages um in that moment so one is written when i was in, uh just out of hospital and once when i was Pregnant again, and one is when we had the baby, uh, when we had uh, Billy. So, those bits will always have this really special, sad um, importance to me. It's not like I'll I'll never write about anything like that again. I feel like I said my piece,
1: and it was really cathartic. And And a legacy, I guess. It's important. You've You've sort of put that baby out in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, so that's that's really important to me. Um, but there's also a lot of there's a lot of angry feminism in there. That um, many topics that I felt guilty that I only scratched the surface of. You know, obviously. Um, but there's a there's a chapter on mad women, the mad woman, that I really enjoyed writing, and I didn't know how big a subject that would be when I started writing it. And that got the editor was like, you've got too many. <laughs> there's a bit where I start going into the examples of women through history who've been brought down and made powerless by being called mad. And there were too many examples. Well, that the could be a whole book like, in itself exactly yeah it should have been a book in itself rather than just a chapter and my editor was like we've got to cut this chapter down it's disproportionately big compared to the rest of the book did you say so, well, you well I'm
1: to... disproportionately yeah. mad so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. why have you put so many examples in here you <laughs> mental <woman>. Exactly. <laughs> well it's a brilliant it's a really brilliant book and again when I think of you as a prolific person who produces content as someone writing a book I'm like and you knocked a book out and then you did this and you had a baby and you so yes <laughs> intimidatingly capable but I'm pleased to know that you spend too much time watching television sometimes by day that's made me feel um, much much better about my life I knowledge. watch so much television Kelly. Yeah. like
0: a lot of television I love television so much um I sometimes I love that you watch
1: too much television it's it a bit this
0: embarrassing is, sometimes when you have conversations with people and they're like what have you been up to and I'll be like <laughs> I've been watching TV and they're like what? And very good
1: today. <laughs> seven, eight or nine full box sets. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. See, I never watched it's because I worked in telly. It wasn't relaxing and now I haven't worked in telly for years, so I can start watching it again. But I don't want I don't watch enough, right? That's going to be my commitment from talking to oh, If you to want watch. me to send you a list of twenty-five recent box sets. Please send me that <laughs> list and and your foundation powder combination. Yeah, I and right. then our work here will be done. Never and in terms of your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment, Rachel, what, what's it to be? Oh, I should have thought of this before the podcast.
0: So a moment, a moment that changed my life. There was, there was a moment uh, in my comedy career, which I never feel on firm footing with. I never have. And I don't think I ever will. Um, There was a moment, it was after the Mash report and I had done touring before that point, but it was me producing myself touring, just ringing up theatres going, please, can I come and play your 90-seater studio? And they'd say yes. And I'd get my own posters printed and I'd send them in the post and all that. And after the Mash report, um, I had a booker, a big booker, and they were booking me into big theatres and they were selling out. And it was really exciting. And I was like, oh, sort of great and also oh fuck i'm a comedian now <laughs> definitely like i'm really locked into this now um and i had uh, a gobo you know those metal lighting things that you put on the light and it makes your name come up on the back of the curtain in these big theaters and i remember going to the sound check of the first date on tour seeing literally that phrase my name in lights And I remember seeing my name in lights and thinking, oh, I've done it. (laughs) I've I've done it. Uh, But do you know what's even better than that is that it's fleeting. It's fleeting. I've still got a gobo, don't get me wrong. They're really cheap. You can get them for a tenner. Um, It's quite easy to get your name in lights, actually, uh, (laughs) on a technical level. But also, I like that we're in this career that You go, oh, that's it. I'm um, a satirical touring comedian who plays at this level and that's what my job is now. And that's no longer the case. Like, I can't play those theatres that are that size anymore. I don't do satire the way I used to or as much as I used to. Or our our careers are always changing and shifting. And that wasn't it. It never has been. Every moment in my career when I've gone, oh, I'm a successful musical comedian or, oh, I'm in satire now. or Oh, I'm an improviser. no. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well I love that it's moment surprising. I think if you'd sat creating that moment to tell it couldn't have it been more lovely and poignant so thank you <laughs> thank, thank you for you. not preparing <laughs> thank you for improvising as you always do so well <laughs> and what's your favorite joke oh
0: um <laughs> oh I've got uh I've got two I'll just tell the shorter one um it's a Jeremy Hardy joke oh, I always I always get it wrong and I always think that Jeremy Hardy. <laughs> will be up there going like, you fucking idiot, get the wording right, because <laughs> I know that you'd it. Um, I'll try and tell it, I'll try and tell it right. Um, it's really short, that's where it has to be the right words. Okay, a man goes into the doctor um, with a problem, and he takes his clothes off, and the doctor examines him, and the doctor says, well, um, you're going to have to stop masturbating. And the man says, oh, why? And the doctor says, because I'm trying to examine you. <laughs> <laughs> I it up. I, it up. I don't think you did.
1: I don't think you did cook it up. <laughs> no, you no, know, I
0: feel like I repeated the word examine, which. I don't think cold. you
1: did. Well, we will uh, we will let listeners see if they did. And we will also see if you we can find a bit say of, and, and we'll see if there's a bit of footage of the actual. Oh my God, that would APS, be great. And, and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> and if you were to give one bit of life advice, Rachel, to anybody listening, what would it be? this
0: bit I feel I'm firmer footing because I am giving everyone this advice all the time don't be too fixed in your dreams you know the whole follow your dreams thing obviously I think have high horizons follow you know do do what you want to do and have high ambitions um but I think you can only base advice on what your experience has been but I would never have thought of half of the things that I've ended up doing by accident and some of the things that happen by accident are the best things that happen so I think if you've got blinkers on you miss you miss a lot of what might be out there for you. So yeah have have loose hold your dreams loosely
1: That was Rachel Paris. We've put links in the show notes to Rachel's book, to Tommy's charity and all the other things we talked about. And do remember to grab those last tickets for the Celebrity Piano Concert this weekend at the King's Place in London, unless you're listening to this in a year, two years, a month, in which case, don't bother. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please do remember to keep rating, reviewing, recommending all the things, you know, stars, give us five stars, give us money, whatever. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to Susie Dent. So I definitely can't say chill. I would never say chillax, and I thought that was the biggest offender. Namaste, motherfuckers. Was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.
0: Namaste, motherfuckers.
1: Pod People.